between the time when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of. And unto this mass movement, destined to bear the jeweled crown of geekdom upon its troubled brow, it is we, mass movement's chroniclers, who alone can tell thee of its saga. Let us tell you of the days of geek adventure. Welcome to Geekorama episode 6, uh, it's been a while again, um, this time we're going to carry on my fascination with Semo Paramedics with a couple of tunes from those guys, and we've got a reading from Caroline Hardacre from her new book Composite Creatures which is published by uh, Angry Robot. Um, so I think we'll finish the show off with Caroline's reading, um, and to begin with we'll talk about the new Essential Terence Dix books, uh, volumes 1 and volumes 2, published by BBC Books. The first forward is by Frank Cottrell Bryce, and the second forward is by Robert Webb. <laughs> I don't even know where to begin with these books. Um, essentially, they're a collection of each of them is a collection of five of Terence Dick's most beloved target novelizations, and I grew up with these books, um, the target novelizations rather. So you get everything from Doctor Who and the Abominable Snowman, Doctor Who and the Auto Invasion, through to Doctor Who and the Talents of Wang, Ch- Wang Chiang and the, and the Horror of Fang Rock, and even the Five Doctors. I love these novelizations as a child. and I, I mean, I've spent the last week and a half reading these books and they are just sublime. Um, it's just lovely to see these back in print in such a gorgeous hardback format. Uh, if you're a Doctor Who fan, you're going to love these books. They, Terrence Dix managed to capture something special on the Doctor that no other writer has. Um, and I so said these volumes one and volumes two, they're just essential reading for any Doctor Who fan. Um, they're published by Doctor Who Books, well, published by BBC Books, and they're Doctor Who Books, and they're you know taken from the original Target novelizations, and you can get them from Amazon now. Uh, I guess I really want to talk about Judd McKay and Alessandro Vitti's Taskmaster um, trade paperback, which has just been published by Marvel. Uh, it's called the Rubicon Trigger, <laughs> and it is brilliant. It is absolutely out there like Pluto. Um, it's a story basically about Taskmaster saving the world. <laughs> and, you know, he is the least likely hero to ever have to do that. Um, but Jed McKay captures the sort of sarky, anti-hero, is he a coward, is he not, sort of vibe that Taskmaster's got going on. Alessandro Vitti's art is just absolutely gorgeous. There isn't a panel in this book that doesn't look wonderful, that isn't brought to life by Vitti's <laughs> extraordinary artwork. And I said, McKay has a knack for dialogue and storytelling that is, well, it's probably why he's writing the new Moon Knight book, um, which this is a great precursor to. So, yeah, Taskmaster the Rubicon Trigger. If you want to see bad guys saving the world and bad guys doing good, this is the place to read about them. Uh, it's the Rubicon Trigger and it's published by Marvel Now. Okay, as I said, um, I'm going to carry on with my semi paramedics uh, obsession, which is burning brightly at the moment. Um, these guys have a long history of mass movement, and we got a long history with them. So I figure it's time to, well, I figure we should just focus on them um, as they're about to start playing some shows again, and they're going to record a new album. So this is Burning the Body by Samuel Paramedics. It's taken from their uh, Live the BBC sessions, which you can get from their band camp now. It's a se- Essentially, it's, it's a pay-what-you-want release, 
But <laughs> as these guys rule, chuck them a couple of quid, download the record, and enjoy it. This is Building the Body by Semmore Paramedics. Zombie call. Gotta love it. Alright, so next I want to talk about Curse the Man Thing by Steve Orlando. Um, the artwork is by Francesco Wilbur, Marco Fiala, and Andrea Bracado. 
and it is well as you'd expect from those three it looks incredible um the story i kind of got into it and i kind of didn't and i was i kind of know where where steve orlando was going um it's about man uh, the man thing being used essentially um by an inhuman to bring about the end of humanity um it's kind of cool to see a, re a, a redemptive arc for Ted Salas and to see him brought into the for into the foreground of the Marvel Universe. Um, but there's just too much going on. It's, it's, it's like a five-issue series, which should have been a ten... Uh, which should have really been a ten-issue series. Because um, there could have been a lot more depth to the story. And I, I get where Steve Orlando's coming from, because I know you can feel from the story that he had so much more to tell, but he was working on a time restraint and an issue restraint. And it kind of feels like there's too much happening at once, but it's a great story. And if you've never read uh, a man thing story, curse the man thing, you know, let him who let him who knows fear burn at the touch of the man thing, um, is a great way to meet Marvel's answer to Swamp Thing. Which, well, if I'm if I'm honest, I prefer Man Thing to Swamp Thing, which I know is heresy um, in four colour dumb. But uh, yeah, call me a traitor. I just prefer the man thing. So, Curse the Man Thing by Steve Orlando um, and the aforementioned artist is published by Marvel and it is available now. Let's talk about Logan. Who doesn't love Wolverine? Um, especially, or essentially, we're going to talk about Wolverine because of Black, White and Blood, which is a black and white um, compilation of Wolverine stories, which is literally dripping in blood. <laughs> um, it's just fantastic. I, I, I can't I don't even know where to begin with this oversized graphic novel it's just wow um you, we got stories by guys like Matthew Rosenberg Jerry Duggan Saladin Ahmed Jed McKay Donny Cates and Ed Brisson who are some of my favorite writers well and the artwork is just incredible um and when you top it off with a story by Kelly Thompson, you cannot go wrong with this book. It is. If you want to read Wolverine about Wolverine doing what Wolverine does best, this is the book you need. Um, it, there's no holds barred. It doesn't spare its punches. It is incredibly violent, incredibly brutal. And it's absolutely heartbreaking because it shows you who, where his heart Logan really is. Um, and he is a broken, lonely man who is very, very good at what he does. Um but it's cost him his soul. It is a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, I, I can't say enough good things about Black, White and Blood. Uh, I'm not the world's biggest Wolverine fan. I'm not the world's biggest X-Men fan. But this, yeah, I, I really love this book. Um, and I think you will too. So yeah, that's Wolverine, Black, White and Blood. And it's published by Marvel in a huge oversized edition. <laughs> and yeah, it's definitely worth a few shekels of anybody's money. Check it out as soon as you can. Okay, let's have another track from some more, some more paramedics. This is uh, The Unclean, which is also taken from there. Undead of the BBC or Live of the BBC, whichever way you want to look at it. It's, again, as I said, as I said it's available on their band camp. And as the band are back, it's just... it's. it's I never thought we'd see some more paramedics doing what some more paramedics do again. <laughs> That's probably why I'm sort of fixating and obsessing on them at the moment. Um... But yeah, so this is The Unclean. It's a bit more thrash call for you, so I'll enjoy it, folks, and I'll see you in a minute. Yeah. 
right, let's talk Marvel, which is essentially Alex Ross's dream project um, brought to life. It's um, it's his. It, it's it's a collection of stories by some of Marvel's greatest writers and artists. So you I mean you look at people like Kurt Busiek, um, Alex Ross himself, Steve Darbinell, Bill Sinkovitz, Scott Gustafson, Daniel Lacuna, Hilary Barter, Doug Rice, and you know. It, it, there's even stories by Eric Powell in this, and it's it's it, it's a story that's framed by um, Doctor Strange battling Nightmare, who seems to have taken over the world, uh, and it's all this one. It's got this wonderful dreamlike quality to every tale. He's just basically says to the writers and the artists, "Go nuts! Give me your tales about the classic heroes and frame them in your classic era of Marvel," and it just works wonderfully. It's it's an old. It's a love letter to the Marvel of yesteryear and the continuing brilliance of the stories and the characters and who they are and what they've done and what they're going to become. I, I honestly, I can't even. I can't recommend this book enough. Um, it seems like we've got a week of really good books. I know, and you know, I apologise for that. But Marvel just seemed to have put their foot down and stepped up to the plate and said, "Have the have some of the greatest books you're ever going to read." Um, Marvel's probably. Marvel, published by Marvel, is quite possibly my favourite book of the year so far. So kudos to Alex Ross, because it was not an easy project to pull together. Um, once you read this book, it's, you're never going to forget it. It's one of those mini-series and one of those um, trade paperbacks that leaves an impression on you. Uh, does it leave as big an impression as Watchmen? Nope, but nearly. It's Yeah, it really is that good. So that's Marvel, published by Marvel. Um, yeah, Alex Ross, thank you, brother, because, you know, you have pushed the ball out and you really, really, really excelled yourself. I can't thank you enough. This is brilliant. Right, folks, that's about it. So I think what we'll do is we'll finish with the reading by Caroline Hardacre from Composite Creatures, her new novel on Angry Robot, which is published rather by Angry Robot. Um, the book's available now. Um, so bye-bye from me. I'll see you next time and take it away, Caroline. There are some things I remember perfectly. I can close my eyes and be there. In school, shaping a stegosaurus with Play-Doh, climbing stone walls and wooden stiles with Mum, or even on the observatory roof, hand in hand with Luke, searching through the smog for sparks of life. Even now, I see his face lit beneath the moon, bright green, smiling in absolute awe at the cosmos and proving without doubt that he had eyes only for antiquities. The way things were. The stars were so bright that I could hear them, like glass shattering. They've never shone so brightly since. But the fact I can relive all these things so vividly just convinces me that I've made them up. Each time I play these memories through, Mum or Luke say something new. It's always something that warms my belly, something that makes me feel better. Only occasionally is it something that hits me hard. But even then, it still strikes a low, satisfying note telling me I was right about being wrong all along. What would you call that? I wonder if it matters, whether these images are real. It's somewhere to go that's dark and balmy. We all do it, don't we? Where do you go? 
A long time ago, Mum told me that in her youth, the sky would flock in spring and autumn with migrating starlings, finches, even gulls, huge grey and white beacons of the sea. I've heard recordings of their calls, somewhere between a lighthouse's horn and a baby's wail. I sometimes close my eyes and imagine how it would sound as hundreds of gulls moved across the blue light shot spray, all wailing to each other out of sync. Ghosts that swam the sky. I think it would sound like the end of the world. Over the years, Mum had collected all the fallen feathers she'd found in the garden, on the roof in the gutter. There was nowhere too low for her to stoop, no mud too deep or sticky for her to squish her knees into and scoop out the treasure. She rinsed the feathers as best she could and bounced them in egg cups wedged between books on shelves. Stuff of stories now, she'd murmur, as she pointed them out to me one after another, telling me which birds they came from. This one, a barn owl. This one, a crow. But she might as well have been naming dinosaurs. I couldn't picture any of them. All the illustrations in Mum's reference books were completely flat. One time, we were sitting on the garden wall together when a bird landed on a perch above us and made the strangest sound, sort of a low whistle. I'd never seen anything like it with its fat grey form and striped underbelly. But Mum just laughed at it and clasped my face between her hands. How are you supposed to think that's a cuckoo? The little patchwork prince. You can almost see the clockwork. I felt silly then and then didn't look back up at the lie, but I kept listening for a telltale tick that never came. Perhaps Mum could hear something I couldn't. Still, I continued to stroke Mum's collection of genuine feathers, gliding the silky fronds between my fingers. Something about them always made me want to pull away, but Mum encouraged me to keep going, to know what they felt like. But it was confusing for me. Was the feather still alive without the body it had been attached to? I wanted to stick the sharp shafts into the skin on the back of my hands and wave them in the wind. Be gentle, Nora, she'd whisper. They're fragile, and who knows if we'll find more. I wished I could see inside her head. I could almost feel them, her thoughts, or at least the shape of them. She was my mum. But the things she did, the things she lifted from mysterious drawers, they were from another world. She looked up to the sky for things I couldn't understand, always through her old binoculars, heavy black things held into shape by stitched skins. She liked to shock me with little facts, things like, when I was little... The sky was full of diamonds that you could only see at night. And me and your gran used to lie on our backs and watch fluffy clouds go by. You could see shapes in them. And if you asked the sky a question, it sometimes told you the future. The more stories she told, the less I believed her. I would gently push my hands to her belly and say, You're fibbing! Tell the truth! But Mum would just shake her head so her red curls bounced over her face and promised that it was real. She'd seen it with her own eyes. One night, she even told me that the moon used to be as white as a pearl. At the time, I didn't know what a pearl was, which seemed to make her even sadder. She pulled me to her side and pressed the binoculars to my face. Keep looking, Nora, up there in the dark. The birds, they might come back. They might. 
I don't know if I believed that. The birds had just disappeared. It was their choice. The news reported a muddle of reasons for it over the years. Climate change, lack of habitats, a faltering ecosystem, the fact that the earth and sky are turning plastic. I remember when I was little, seeing on TV the reports about initiatives to encourage the building of bird boxes and custom annexes on business premises. Children's TV shows had segments where the hosts showed you how to build your own bug hotel or bird feeder out of an old pine cone, but I didn't know anyone who managed to bring anything to roost. Later, after I'd discovered the joy of watching the world through mum's binoculars, I did ask her when it all started, the fading away of wildlife in the wind and soil. But she just looked out of the window and squinted her eyes against the white grey sky. It all happened so gradually, she said. I don't think any of us noticed until they'd gone. Mum tried to make me believe the miraculous could happen, that surprises were around every corner. But even then, I only nodded and smiled to be nice, to make her feel better. I'd never understood why people need to believe in something we can't see. It's like reality isn't enough. They constantly need wonder or When Art and I were dating, even in the earliest days, he always threw in the unexpected. For our very first date, we arranged to go for a meal at a French restaurant, La Folie. I spent far too long tangling myself up in dozens of outfits before deciding on a pair of rose gold trousers and a black chiffon shirt. Only a bit sheer. At 31, I wondered if I was a bit too old for clothes that showed too much, or whether I'd come across as desperate. I ran my hands over the shape of me, repeating to myself the mantra, I do look good, I do look good. Even after I'd committed to an outfit, I couldn't stop faffing. I tried the shirt my usual way of leaving it loose and flowing, but it just didn't seem right. I then tried tucking it in, but I couldn't stand feeling constrained. In the end, I undid the last three buttons and tied the open panels into a bow. Already, the chiffon was sticking to my skin. My hair, a fluffy brown nightmare at the best of times, was unusually coy and submitted to being clipped to the side with a gold triangle pin. I painted my skin in bronze and peach, finishing myself as I would a precious gift. When I caught my reflection in the mirror, I hardly recognised myself and fought the instinct to wipe it all off again. Maybe it was good that I felt like a stranger. This was the new me, a new beginning. Perhaps a costume was what I needed. I took a taxi straight to the restaurant, my cheeks burning at how late I was. At one point, I lowered the window to cool myself down and the caustic air stung my nostrils. It was so much worse in this area of the city. How could I have forgotten to wear perfume? Stupid. All I could hope was for that restaurant had plenty of scented candles and a top-notch purifier. I rolled the window back up and tried fanning my face with my handbag, but a quick glance at my watch and I was distracted again. First impressions are so important. Though in the end, my lateness probably wasn't a bad thing. My desperation to get there quickly proved to be the perfect distraction from my beating heart the mounting sense of panic rising in my throat. I flew into the restaurant, not at all thinking about how I looked or whether the other diners would guess why I was there. I spotted Art straight away, sitting at a table in the far corner of the restaurant, 
a leather portfolio resting between the cutlery in front of him as if he was ready to eat it. The bronze ankh symbol and EG stamped on the cover shone in the candlelight. I weaved my way between tables, crushed with friends and lovers, all leaning towards each other, baring their teeth, spilling wine, and finally reached our table. Art stood when he saw me coming, the fingers of his right hand twitching a little, his right arm pinned down by his left. I'm so sorry, Arthur. He stopped me short by pulling me into an embrace. Don't worry about it, you look beautiful. My arms wrapped around his shoulders, bending on wooden hinges and dangling on strings. I was conscious that I stood a little taller than him, and my elbows awkwardly sought out the place they would have sat before, which now were empty space. I finally let my arms rest on his shoulder blades, acutely aware of how the expanse of my hands fanned across his back. We sat, and I saw there was already a glass of red wine waiting for me. I picked the glass by the stem and took a sip, my tongue shrinking away from its dry and mossy texture. Art picked up his glass and took a long, romantic draught, his eyes on my eyes, on his eyes. His hair was cropped and much shorter than when I'd watched him in the waiting room. Then, he'd had an early hint of a beard, but now his skin was shaved so close that his cheeks and chin looked like porcelain. I wondered whether he would break if I touched him. Would everything break? As soon as I sat down, he grabbed my hand and gave it a squeeze. His palm was dry and rubbery not like China at all. No, it wouldn't break. I'd make sure of it. But then the worst happened. Within minutes of me getting there, I had nothing to say. My tongue rolled in my empty mouth, searching for something, anything to fill in this enormous chasm before it became even wider. I'd stalled, utterly and completely. Art's eyes were huge and exposing, and all I could think about was how his skin was even paler than mine, how his hair might feel between my fingers. Bristly, maybe. Not soft. It could have been seconds, it could have been minutes, but it felt like years were already spinning by and I couldn't get off the carousel. Art smiled, showing rows of straight white teeth with a little gap between the two front ones, about the size of a penny's cross-section. I thought this might happen. He reached below his chair and on sitting up swung his arm in a flamboyant arc to the ceiling before bringing down on his head a miniature yellow party hat shaped like an ice cream cone, peaked with a cloud of fluorescent pom-poms. Happy first date day, he sang, his arms stretching wide in celebration. I laughed, spitting puce across the table and then covering my face with my hands as if denying I had a mouth at all. He pulled a second hat from beneath his seat, this time shaped like a canoe with long strings dangling from the front and back like a horse's tail. He thrust it towards me. I thought it might break the tension. Join me? Terrified, I took it by the tassel and didn't know what to do. Wasn't everyone in the restaurant already looking? I, come on, put it on. In the end, I did it not because I wanted to, but because I thought it might showcase us as a real couple, celebrating a a birthday or anniversary, maybe. The other diners would whisper, well, they must know each other already. Why else would they dare to be so ostentatious? I grinned back at Art as if it was all for him, only letting a hint of self-consciousness shine through.
And you know what? As soon as I pulled the hat over my eyes, something changed. I couldn't even see if anyone was looking anymore. And that slight act of outrageousness overshadowed mine and Art's feeble history. Now we were set apart from everyone else in a positive way. We were the loud ones, the ones everyone deliberately tried to ignore. It was genius. We had our first funny story. Remember the hats, darling? Tell them about the hats. Art moved his portfolio aside to the edge of the table, leaving it closed, and I didn't even take mine out of my bag. The whole thing felt surprisingly organic. We moved through the night at the same pace, holding hands through time. He told me a little about his family in Wisconsin, how he'd moved to New York in his early 20s to get away from the crowd he left behind. He was vague about the details, and when I asked him about it, he just shook his head and took another drink. It wasn't that he avoided it, but I picked up that he saw his life in the US as a chapter which had very much ended. At this point, he'd only been living in the UK for a few months, but it sounded like he was determined to cut ties with everyone back home. He said it was simpler. So, I was going to be taking on Arthur alone, no extra baggage, which pleased me, nice and clean. I watched him all the time. While we talked, he had an odd little tick of pulling on the fleshy bit of his ear as he tied off sentences, and he often looked at me sideways when I talked for more than a few minutes. When he ate, he never touched the cutlery with his lips or his teeth, and instead dropped the food into his mouth. He opened his eyes particularly widely when listening, as if he heard more with the whites. Our little table was positioned in front of a huge aquarium, which reached up to the ceiling and across the wall. The glass looked thick as brick and made a dull clunk when Art tapped a knuckle on it. At head height, between the waving reeds, a shoal of guppies flickered with long flashing tails and fish with Dalmatian spots cut through the gloom to follow my finger across the glass. We each picked our favourite fish. Art chose a white guppy with a blue sheen which he named Albatross and I chose the little brown catfish which snuffled around on the grass in the sand with her feline whiskers and otter-like mouth. She was the only one that moved slowly enough for me to make out the tiny stitches holding her together. The bulging seams.